Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 275. And we thought it would be appropriate today since over the weekend, Hollywood Studios celebrated their 32nd anniversary, that it'd be fun to talk about an iconic attraction. But before we get started, we would like to mention our travel agent sponsor for this episode, and that is Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. If you are looking to go to Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, or anywhere else, just go to littlebitofdisney.com. There you'll find a quick form that you can fill out, put in the information that you know for your trip that you want to take, and she will be in touch with you shortly after to make sure that she gets all the pieces in place and help you plan a fantastic trip. So there's no cost to you to use this service. It's completely free and will make your life way easier. So again, you can go to littlebitofdisney.com or click in the show notes in the link there and you can reach that free quote. Yeah, so we mentioned that we are going to talk about an iconic attraction, but what's a little bit different today is that this attraction is no longer with us. And I do believe in the past, I guess we told a little white lie because we said that we had no plans, I guess, of doing like an extinct attraction. But this one just seemed like a lot of fun. So here we are. When I think about Hollywood Studios and the history of it, I know this is a little bit controversial, but I think the quintessential attraction that captures what this park was and what it was meant to be, I think of Backlot Tour. I know a lot of you may think of Great Movie Ride, but I actually think Backlot Tour was a little more hit close to home for what they were going for. And ultimately, I think what we've now learned that they weren't able to pull off. But the history and this time period, especially if you look in the mid-80s to the late 90s, I think is the most fascinating time period post-Walt for the Walt Disney Company. It is absolutely insane, and a lot of it centers around none other than Michael Eisner. The man's crazy, (laughs) in a good way and in a bad way. And so I think it's just healthy to talk about some of these stories as they come up so that when next time you're walking through Disney's Hollywood Studios, you understand why buildings are placed the way they are or what used to be in this space And what was the story that they were once trying to tell you? And then now how has that changed over time? And there is nothing at all that took more landmass than this attraction. We'll get to that in a minute. But we need to wind it back a little bit into Michael Eisner's tenure. It's a very interesting and wild time. If you know his background, before he came over to Disney in 1984... He was working, he was the president of Paramount Pictures. And so there was this meeting that took place in the early 80s when he was still at Paramount where Universal approached Paramount and had this pitch almost to try to get Paramount to back 
this new idea that they had to open up a working production slash theme park area in Central Florida. In Orlando. In Orlando. So, of course, that eventually turned into Universal Studios Florida. Early 80s. Fast forward a couple of years. Frank Wells comes over to work at Disney. Michael Eisner comes over to work at Disney as well. And they had this idea of something that they were working on in Epcot where they were going to have a movie pavilion. So it was supposed to be in the space between the land and the Imagination Pavilion, correct? Yeah, you can see that little piece of land in between the two pavilions where it probably would have fit. I mean, I think right now uh, it's just the empty field where like Winnie the Pooh searches for butterflies. Well, it's the butterfly garden right now for flower and garden as well. But they do have space that goes further back. That eventually became, that's where the show building sits for Soren as well, because those show buildings for Soren are gigantic. But anyway, Eisner comes in and they're working on this idea of something that they're going to put into Epcot, which opened in 1982, of course. And he keeps pushing them, saying, like, this is a bigger idea than what can just fit into Epcot. Like, there's more legs to this. We can make something bigger and better to go along with this. So, of course, he pitches it, the Imagineers get on board, the board of directors gets on board, everybody who's part of that decision-making process gets on board, and so he pitches this idea that they're going to have a working Hollywood movie set type place slash theme park. Seem familiar? Just a little bit. So, you know, it's never been really confirmed nor denied Universal has said it so many times, you know, especially back in the day when all of this was taking place. Basically, Eisner was in that meeting and he took many of the ideas that were pitched to him and brought them over to what would become MGM Hollywood Studios. And one of the big aspects of that is this studio backlot tram tour. It's honestly comical how many similarities there are. I mean, it's it's almost very apparent that, you know, both parties were sitting in the room where all these ideas were thrown out because they are pretty parallel. And we're going to get to that. So just to take it, take it a step further, there's also so many parallels going on between there can honestly be an entire relationship talking about how Universal and Disney play off of each other so much. So like Pandora is in direct response to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. You could even say Galaxy's Edge is that Toy Story Land is in response to Diagon Alley. You know, there's so many things of them trying to keep up with each other, but they also rip ideas off of each other. So if you fast forward a couple years down the line, when Animal Kingdom is being built, opens in 1998, what does Universal do? They opened Islands of Adventure with an area called the Lost Continent that is very, very similar to this idea of having the Beastly Kingdom part of Animal Kingdom and open that 13 months later in 1999. So there's a lot of ripping off back and forth. If you remember back in the day when we talked about, I think it was in the Pandora episodes, a lot of Imagineers left during the late 90s from Disney and went over to Universal and worked on the Lost Continent area. And that's why there's so many similarities and things that they want to do in Beastly Kingdom that they weren't able to do. But this 
I think is kind of this is almost the first band-aid that ripped of that Eisner didn't think of this idea on his own. And who knows? Did he present it to the rest of Disney that it was his idea? Did he let on to say like, hey, I know our biggest competitors who are coming to town are about to do something very similar, so we need to jump on this? Who knows? We will probably never know. But it's so interesting to look at the whole idea of MGM Studios was not original. Well, I mean, it's also just interesting to think about, I don't know, both parties convinced, you know, their huge companies that this was going to work. You know, I don't know what was said in either meeting, but obviously there was some very compelling argument as to like, this can work. This, this has to happen because they both happened. They were both gunning to make this Hollywood of the East, you know, to that they thought they would be able to attract these big name movies and TV shows to come out there and be on production. But honestly, the most notable things that took place for both of them were the Mickey Mouse Club and MGM Studios and the Nickelodeon shows were the biggest ones at at uh, Universal. So it's wild that they kind of both were children's. TV focused and they didn't really get the big blockbuster hits like they had originally planned. I mean, they were their own productions. That's all that it was like, okay, we have the building, you know, what's the cheapest thing to put here? And I feel like that was it. So let's talk about studio backlot tour. It opened on May 1st, 1989 with MGM studios at the time opening day attraction, It closed after many, many, many revisions on September 27th, 2014. And so when MGM Studios opened on May 1st, 1989, this was the premier attraction, and it fit perfectly with what the park was trying to accomplish. It was entertaining guests, and it would really immerse them in the magic of a real Hollywood production. Well, I mean, and if we're thinking about when... MGM Hollywood Studios opened, it was just this and the great movie ride, which is why you mentioned at the very beginning, Brendan, that some people feel like the backlot tour was like the headline part of Hollywood Studios and others would have went with the great movie ride. It's hard for me to pick a side because this was honestly the park that my family did not spend a lot of time at. I think probably because there just wasn't much to do growing up. And we didn't like thrill rides, so it's not like I was going to get on Tower of Terror or Rock and Roller Coaster. Well, and I think a big problem that a lot of people would have with Backlot Tour is that the number of people who are able to see it in every single different version are probably very few and far between. It'd probably be people who either came every single year or locals or cast members at the time who are able to come on a regular basis because they changed it and tweaked it so often and it continued to get things cut or moved or changed so you know it's tough to really compare it's not it's kind of apples to oranges i think we're a great movie ride the changes were fewer and far between that's a good point so if we start to think about what made this attraction so unique i feel like we have to start with the time limitation when the studios tour started it was two hours long that was 
like the duration of the attraction. Can you imagine being anywhere, like stuck anywhere in Disney for two hours? I feel like that is every parent's nightmare. I mean, honestly, because what if your kid starts to throw a fit or what if you're just hot or tired or hungry or whatever it might be? And I mean, what were they thinking? Who knows what they were thinking? I mean, I think they were just trying to fit every single and pack every single punch that they could into this. I think this also mirrors that they were trying to basically mimic all the highlights of the tram tour that they had at Universal Studios Hollywood and trying to mimic that plus go above and beyond and make it better. But instead, they just kept adding length instead of really packing a powerful punch in a lot of the scenes and experiences that they would make you go through. So it's interesting. They split it up into a tram part at the beginning. So that was about the halfway point. And then the second half was a walking tour. And you would have thought that Disney would know, okay, you know, maybe some people don't want to do both. Let's like allow an opt out kind of thing. Like where's the emergency exit? And there was none. The only way to get back to the actual park was to finish the walking tour. How many people do you think just zoomed through the walking tour as fast as they possibly could? But I, I mean, thinking about it now, again, I don't, I wasn't even born when they did the original, but I mean, could you, or was it somewhat guided? I mean, like there were obviously stopping points where there were things that you had to like stop and watch. I mean, I'm sure if you had a kid who was throwing a fit, you know, you could have shuffled your way through or something, but Like, was that even possible? Like, could you just put your head down and run through it? So this is a good point to talk about the landscape and how the geography of this laid out. So this walking portion of it was basically the stack of buildings starting at Little Mermaid, going all the way back to what is now the backside of Toy Story Mania. There's basically buildings that are stacked right next to each other, Over and over and over again, the big walkway that now you go into Toy Story Land, that was a big stage building as well. And so they would just kind of shuffle you through each building along that walking tour. So I don't know. It it does seem pretty structured in that way where the only thing I can think of, if you're like the first person in and they say go all the way to the end of the row. You just just keep walking. Keep walking. It just, it sounds very stressful honestly. But I mean, ultimately, I feel like, like you said, it was so long because they were trying to one up it, but they wanted you to feel like you were on this, you know, over the top experience, you know, like they wanted to give you that Hollywood experience in every sense of, you know, production. So they walked you through a lot. So I don't know if that was part of it, too. It's just that they were trying to be very detail-oriented. And in order to be able to do that, I mean, it did just take a lot of time. It's just so weird to think about. So on the tram tour, guests would first stop at the production center, which was including a costuming area where you could look in and see them making different costume shops and observe the cast members sewing and working on these things for various Hollywood productions. This was followed by the scenic shop, where you could see craftsmen constructing different sets or props or things that they were using for TV production as well. 
it's still so interesting knowing that they really didn't have much work coming in. There was no real things on set for the most part. Was it most of it fake, you think? Like, was it just, hey, you know, Johnny, I know you're a costume designer. We really don't have anything for you to do. But these guests are going to be riding by in this tram tour watching you work. So act like you're sewing something together. I Look find busy. That would be so fascinating to know, you know, would they give them jobs for some of their work out in Hollywood? Or were they just buying time? You know, what I thought of is maybe... In those downtimes, because it feels like it would be very expensive to make like actual costumes and then ship them out to Hollywood. So I thought maybe they would work on like cast member costumes or something, you know, maybe even just like little repairs. Like who would know, you know, I mean, like, I feel like no one is that detail oriented to pick up on that. But could you really just piddle around all day with no real work? I don't know. I also would hate that role if people were watching me all day. And, and we will get to that. You just brought up a very good point. Um, but from there, the tram took you to an area called Residential Street, which sounds pretty cool. Um, basically what it was were these facades for these houses that would have been used in different television shows. So there were four different houses there. Um, one from the Golden Girls, The Empty Nest, Adventures in Wonderland, and then Ernest Saves Christmas. Now, I'm no movie buff or TV, you know, expert, but I'm one for four on these. What about you? Two for four. I know the Golden Girls. That's about it. I know Golden Girls and Ernest Saves Christmas. And you should know Ernest Saves Christmas for a couple reasons. Okay. One, Ernest is paid by Jim Varney who eventually went on to be the voice of Slinky Dog in Toy Story 1 through 3, I think, or he might have stopped after 2. He passed away. Mm-hmm. And his widow sat in front of us at the Titans game. Yes, we know her. Kind of. Kind. Of, we would talk to her. Yeah, we would talk to her occasionally, but very nice lady. Yeah, you know Ernest. Well, now I do. I didn't know Slinky Dog saved Christmas. He did. They could make a whole short on that. They totally should. Wouldn't that be adorable? Like a spoof of Ernest Saves Christmas with Slinky Dog in it instead? Well, I was just thinking like, you know, instead of like Rudolph, it's like Slinky Dog pulling Santa's sleigh. Interesting. It's a good idea. Okay. Someone at Pixar should be listening right now. But as far as thinking about like today, if this was still going on, what would be some cool houses to see? Like what... Would you want to see from TV? Does it have to be Disney? I mean, I feel like it has to be. I was going to say Stranger Things. I knew you were going to say that, but I feel like that they couldn't do that because of Universal. Modern Family. That's such a good one. I mean, it's done now, but Modern Family, I feel like, would be good. I don't watch it, but I do know it's kind of a, a fun set that people are interested in is The Goldbergs, another okay. ABC show. Did you have some in mind? Um, I mean, nothing in particular. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, houses. I mean, it, back in the day, it'd be great to have Full House, Even Stevens, Lizzie McGuire. Like, all of those would be... A lot, all of those Disney ones had houses in them. Yeah. That's so Raven. Hannah Montana. Yeah. 
I'm thinking modern. You have to think modern. I mean, I'm trying to too, but I don't. We don't watch very many sitcoms anymore. No, we don't, unfortunately. But it'd be cool. Good photo op. Wandavision. Wandavision. Okay, now we're talking. Um, and this was also the part of the tour where you could see Herbie the love bug. He would kind of like lunge at the tour tram, uh, spit water, things like that. So that's pretty cool. The tram would then proceed and take a tour of New York Street, which later would eventually become the Streets of America. So this is kind of the first stopping point where we can talk about people complained a lot about the length of this attraction. And so over the years, and as soon as like a year after it was open, Disney would start cutting things off and making it shorter. The two biggest guest complaints that they got at MGM Studios were there weren't there wasn't enough walking room, which is interesting because you still hear that complaint. Yeah, there's still not enough walking room. And there weren't enough attractions to do. And they also complained about the length of this attraction. So Disney would start kind of peeling off of what was part of the tram tour and instead just open up those areas. And they kind of sold it as this, you know, hey, now you get to explore this at your own leisurely pace and you get to see it on your own. But it was really just a way to use these finished onstage areas of the park and open them up for walking to appease the guests who felt very cramped. Because really, if you think about it, the only places that they could walk at the very beginning of this were straight down Hollywood Boulevard up to um, the Chinese Theater. Mm-hmm. Sunset Boulevard was not there, nope. so you couldn't walk down there. And then you could basically walk back and get into the tram tour, which at this time started where Star Wars Launch Bay is. Mm-hmm. And so it was incredibly small. I mean, just to think about that is wild. You could walk a little bit down, and this was even a later thing too. You could walk down next to ABC Commissary a little ways, and then the Echo Lake area to a certain extent as well, mm-hmm. because you could walk all the way to Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular, which was an opening day attraction as well. But if you really think about it, that's not a lot of walking space or not a lot of space to spread out. It's just not a lot of park. It's not. And it's still not, honestly. That's true. Something else to mention that was brought up a lot in our research is the Streets of America like claim to fame is that it was used as the site for filming um, a movie called The Lottery that apparently had Bette Midler in it. And they like marketed the ever living crap out of it. They did. And I mean, I've never seen that movie. Maybe it was awesome. Maybe it was a total flop. But it's just funny to think that like that is what they were selling people. Like you get to go on this tram tour and see this and it's awesome. And, you know, we didn't have to go to New York. We filmed it right here. Starring Bette Midler. Yes. And to me, I mean, it's just... It's funny. And I think it it just goes to show again that they were so hopeful that maybe by marketing it this way and like hyping it up that it would become something, you know, that it would become the Hollywood, you know, the next big place for filming. So it's just funny. So from there, 
you would continue into Catastrophe Canyon. So I do think that this was a pretty cool part of the tour. However, again, the parallels to the Universal version are just comical. I mean, just very similar um, as far as this is where you got to see the special effects that would make you believe that, you know, a movie was being filmed here. So any of, it was called Catastrophe Canyon because any kind of natural disaster, you know, rain, fire, earthquakes, they tried to highlight all of that here. Um, And the biggest one was that like an oil tanker would blow up and then the flood would be shortly after. Um, So if you get a chance, you should definitely try to look on YouTube to see the similarities. There's a great video on Yesterworld where he broke down and kind of pokes fun at how closely related these two attractions. I mean, you have to poke fun. So following up on that was the Boneyard, which I think most people would agree. This is like the coolest part of it. Here you can see random props from different Disney films. And it was placed here because in real Hollywood backlots, studios would keep old props around in case that they needed them for future productions or future movies. And so at MGM Studios, the Boneyard served more as a museum of relics from past films and included props from the Rocketeer, Roger Rabbit, and Star Wars. There was like a TIE fighter back there, wasn't there? Something, And then the other one that stood out to me was from um, Roger Rabbit. The, um, what was it called with the green stuff? The drip uh, thing? Yes, the drip. And it was like on display. It was pretty cool. The dip, not drip. The dip, yes. We're the worst Roger Rabbit fans of all time. We are. The other cool portion of this part of the tour was that this is where you could see the Earful Tower, which was the first icon of the park. We kind of poke fun now of what is the icon of Disney's Hollywood Studios, but back in the day, it was known that it is the Earful Tower. Then later you would get the Sorcerer Hat. Then now the conversation is, is it Tower of Terror or is it the Chinese Theater? I kind of still wish it was the Earful Tower. I feel like they so easily could have put it somewhere else i mean why couldn't they have just moved it you disney could do anything behind indiana jones and it'd be fine Mm -hmm. but they didn't they didn't where i mean what do you know what they did with it is it just gone scrapped somewhere i would assume that they have the one that they have in walt disney studios in paris that's not the same one i feel i feel like it would be too much to ship it rather than just make a new one out there yeah it doesn't seem worth it to ship it so they probably just took it to the scrapyard if i had to guess Oh, that's sad. Someone should have been able to put that in their backyard. I bet John Stamos would have bought it. Probably Put it in his backyard. But this basically marked the end of the first half of the tour. So now you would start the walking portion. And the very first thing that guests saw was a water tank demonstration, which pretty much displayed how special effects were used to make ship-based films. And they particularly used the Pearl Harbor movie i never watched it pearl harbor was the only really thing that i remember about that movie is when you bought it on dvd it was so long they have had to put it on two discs and i never ever not a single time made it to the second disc i fell asleep every single time i remember titanic was the same way too or at least for the vhs version because my parents had it and i just remember 
thinking like, wow, two discs, that's crazy. Or two VHS tapes, that's crazy. I mean, the Pearl Harbor movie, I think, was pretty good. It had like Josh Harnett in it. I think Jennifer Garner was in it as well. What? Okay, maybe now I have to watch it. Don't quote me on that. Maybe it's just someone who looks like Jennifer Garner. Could be. I'm going to look it up. Good luck. But this is where guests actually got to volunteer to be part of the demonstration, and they could act out, you know, sailors, boarding a ship, different things. And from here, you would go to the different stages. So first you went to the sound, the sound stage. That was along Mickey Avenue. And you would basically walk in these overhead walkways. And as you were walking, you would just get to look down into the studios, into these different stages, looking through these windows, basically. So you got like a bird's eye view of everything that was going on. Jennifer Garner was in Titanic, by the way. Along with You mean in Pearl Harbor? Oh yeah, in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> along with Kate Beckinsale and I knew Ben Affleck and then Josh Hartnett was in it as well. And John Voigt, star studded cast. Oh. Anyway, just had to clear that up. I'm I'm so glad you looked. Mickey Avenue was themed to look like the Mickey Avenue in the Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Um, and from here, guests entered the area titled Inside the Magic Special Effects and Production Tour. And this is where all the different special effects were demonstrated for guests. And something that cracks me up about this Backlot Studios tour is that they included a lot from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So particularly in this section of the tour, they had a big green screen. And again, they took two volunteers where they would show you basically a giant bumblebee and how... They got, you know, the green screen and the kids and this bumblebee to work together to make, to recreate the scene from the movie. Well, they even had a portion where they had Rick Moranis and Goldie Hawn from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids on like a a filmed portion of it to present this idea. Well, and this is completely separate from what we're talking about, but eventually, you know, Hollywood Studios ended up with a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids playground area. Which was awesome. I never really experienced it. Did you even have a childhood? I did. I told you we skipped Hollywood Studios a lot. Which is a crime. We can blame my parents. But when we talked about Epcot 2 and the Imagination Pavilion, they took things from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So, I mean... It was a box office hit. I mean, did but... Like, what could you even compare it to today? Because that's what I struggle with. Like, I when I think Disney hits, never have I ever thought, honey, I shrunk the kids as being groundbreaking. I don't know what you could compare it to. It was just the perfect encapsulation of the 80s and 90s. And that's just what we have to believe? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the best comparison is like Flubber, which is basically... The same movie, just made differently. I just, it's hilarious to me that it was just everywhere. We have to watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, because you've never seen it, have you? I'm sure I've seen parts of it. Somehow I find that very hard to believe. Disney Plus. I mean, why isn't it just gold starred on Disney Plus as the greatest masterpiece ever? It should be. Apparently, it should be. 
So following this were production sound stages that offered guests an opportunity to observe real production going on without disturbing the actual production. So they had things like the Mickey Mouse Club use these sound stages to record their Disney Channel shows. And there were also opportunities to see the Jim Henson Creature Shop where there were many puppets and props. Now this sounds amazing, particularly the Jim Henson Creature Shop. But the Mickey Mouse Club, I mean, that would have been this, the reboot, right? So this would have been Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera. That group was there, right? I mean, I guess so. And that would be pretty cool, especially if that was a show that you enjoyed watching, which I'm sure it was for a lot of people. Like the opportunity to potentially see something like that would be pretty like mind-blowing. It does make me wonder... You know, like, would there have been cast members or someone in there to shuffle you along? Because if I get up there and I see Britney Spears, I'm not leaving. You know what I mean? Like, how would they get people to keep walking? I don't know. Good question. But they never had to battle that. I was going to say, real talk now, like we mentioned, you know, despite Disney's best efforts, nothing actually came to the park other than Disney produced things like the Mickey Mouse Club. You know, they never attracted any big movies. They never attracted really anyone. And they tried really hard. You know, the Florida Film Commission offered like things like tax breaks, credits, and they just never took it. Which is interesting because this is kind of the same idea and approach that Atlanta and ended up taking recently as well is that film production and movies have become to just cost so much out in California that Atlanta is getting so much of the business now for TV and film. And so it's almost maybe one of those things that Universal and Disney were ahead of their time. However, I do think the fact of guests walking through this area all day was probably a major turnoff for any sort of production company thinking about putting something together. Can you imagine, like, if they were doing anything Marvel here? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's got to be a closed set, a gag order on every single person. You know, everything is so secretive now where you don't want things to come out mm-hmm. ahead of time. And there's probably, to a certain extent, some of that back in the day as well. Of that, I don't want you know, these Walt Disney World guests wearing mini ears watching me and my crew try to try to work? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was just like an added level of pressure that was unnecessary and probably just an added level of headache that they didn't need. You know, what if kids were crying or something happened? I don't know if you'd be able to hear that behind the glass, but I'm sure it would cause a disruption that would have caused them to stop filming. And I don't know any actors personally, but just <laughs> it's it goes with the space of that you can, you know, a lot of actors are temperamental or particular. And so I'd imagine it would be hard to attract a lot of big names if you said, hey, Alec Baldwin, instead of producing in Hollywood, we're actually going to take you to Orlando, Florida. And those stars don't live in Orlando, Florida like they would Hollywood. You know, maybe the hope was that they would move down to Orlando if it became big enough. But that's just like an extra cost, too, I feel like. 
So near the end of the walking tour was a making of set tour of the latest Disney films and attractions. And then that would empty out into the Walt Disney theater. The tour ended with a short film of Michael and Mickey, where Michael Eisner would be accompanied by Mickey Mouse and they would introduce the previews of current and upcoming films. This sounds like the greatest thing ever created. I was going to say the opposite. How cringy. Well, that's why it's the greatest thing ever created. But I don't want to watch Michael and Mickey. Give me Walt and Mickey. What do you mean give me Walt and Mickey? How is Walt going to talk about the current well, movies? Well, he obviously can't, but it just seems cringy that Michael Eisner would even put himself like that with Mickey. Doesn't it just seem weird? I don't know. I don't buy that as much as I just think that Michael Eisner is just... He's such a character, and it's so funny to see the places that he inserted himself into the company and just like the face of the company. Well, yeah. Following this making of area, guests would then leave the attraction and walk through a store called the Disney Studio Tour. And within just a few months of opening the MGM Studios, the Walt Disney Theater, where guests emptied out, was separated and became its own theater that then went on to show Here Comes the Muppets, which was, I would do anything to go back and watch Here Comes the Muppets. They were full-size Muppets, like the size that you would see Mickey and Minnie walking around as characters in the parks of Muppets. I know. They had a Fozzie Bear, a Miss Piggy, a Kermit, Kermit, everything. And then eventually they would go on to be Voyage of the Little Mermaid. I know. Hard to believe Voyage of the Little Mermaid with its groundbreaking technology was not there in 1989. It, I mean, <laughs> talk about a downgrade, though. To go from Here Come the Muppets, and I know they probably left because eventually they got their own Muppet Vision 3D, but to go from that to the Voyage of the Little Mermaid, like, what? That's, I don't know. It desperately needs an update. Everyone says it. But I almost feel like it could stand to become something else. I just feel like it doesn't really fit the space anymore. Without it being the animation courtyard, I don't think it really fits anymore. That's the biggest thing. And I don't know if we mentioned this, but you would walk through a space where you could watch animators working, which would be super cool because you could see them working on, you know, upcoming films and movies and that was probably the most realistic or just the biggest part of any of these production studios because those actually came to fruition. Part of that, heartbreakingly enough, was Home on the Range, which I love. I mean, Home on the Range is probably single-handedly the worst <laughs> Disney movie of all time. But I love it. It was even we even heard the commentary of saying that it killed traditional animation. It was so bad that they as a company decided that they could not do hand-drawn animation anymore. Okay, but despite that, you could walk through and see them drawing Home on the Range. So I What did, a time to be alive. I did actually look this up just because I was interested in it. We talked about, you know, they wanted to have these big films made here. They did see this a little bit more in the animation side. So I have a list of movies, big name movies that they worked on or that they fully completed in MGM Studios. Do you know any of them before I share it? I'm on the range. 
Uh, I'm not sure if Home on the Range is, was fully completed there. I believe it was, but a big name is what I said. Not the lowest of the low, scraping the bottom, worst thing to ever come out of the company. <laughs> okay. Okay, dramatic. That's how I feel. Let's hear the list. So in this, they called it a satellite studio away from Burbank. They worked on parts of Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. But then they worked on two big name movies that were fully done in MGM Studios. Mulan and Lilo and Stitch. What? No, that is awesome. That is really cool. But can you imagine being an animator? You get your dream job of working for your dream company and you show up to work. They say, hey, you're working in Orlando, Florida. And you say, great. You know, maybe a little bit cheaper than moving out to Burbank. Maybe you're an East Coast person, so it's a little bit easier for you. They show you your desk and you're basically in a fishbowl with big glasses at the top where people are watching you work during park hours every day. Or I feel like what would be even worse is if you were a Hollywood person who loved working in Burbank, California, and they said you are being relocated to Orlando, Florida. So it's honestly shocking that they even, you know, because animators were so prized and are still so prized by the company, it's crazy that they would make them work in their, that environment. Again, I'm not an artist, but I have to imagine if you're an animator, that's something like you get in the zone, you got your headphones in, you are, you know, maybe collaborating with other people. It's a space that you have to constantly keep your creative juices flowing and that's probably a little bit hard when you got guests walking by and tapping on the glass all day, trying to get your attention of, hey, draw Mickey Mouse. Oh, my gosh. I sure hope that never happened. Although it people did. are sometimes the worst. Yeah, I could I could picture that. So now that we've finished this tour, I think it's another good time to just point out how huge and massive all of this space took up. So if you look at it now, it basically starts at Star Wars Launch Bay, where it currently is, and you span all the way back through Toy Story Land to Galaxy's Edge, mm -hmm. and then bring it back up through the Metropolis area, or Municiburg, sorry, I always say it wrong, <laughs> Municiburg area, and through those buildings, through One Man's Dream, through all that. It was absolutely huge. But it would have even circled around, correct me if I'm wrong, over to where the Streets of America used to be in the Muppet Courtyard. Yeah. It basically I mean, it would have, have circled taken, back there, too. It basically would have taken all of Galaxy's Edge's footprint mm -hmm. and brought you over there to that Grand Avenue area near Baseline Tap House. And then it would have circled you back. That was another part of the tram tour too if you look at like the route that they took you would pass some of the same things like two or three times so it's not like the entire time that you were going on the tour you were seeing something new like you might have seen the front side of it and the back side and that usually only works on jungle cruise because the back side of water is very exciting but it was it was wild i can't say that i didn't enjoy it going on it in the late 90s and early 2000s. Now, I did, I do remember complaining to my family about how long it was, and I didn't even go on the two-hour-long version. 
but I do know it was one of those. I distinctly remember being in line, being like, "This, this is ruining the rest of our day." <laughs> like we that are is, done for after and this. That is how I felt when I had to sit with your parents, your family, through the Captain EO. That's exactly how I felt. This, this is, is not, ruining my that's day. That's not the same. It is the same. But eventually, so if we're thinking about changes, they did end up splitting it into two. So the tram portion became the backlot tour, and then the walking portion became the backstage pass. And then in 2001, so it didn't last long, backstage pass got split apart. And then that's where we started to see some of the same things that we saw today, um, like the one man's dream. And then in 2003, that residential street with all those houses, um, they got torn down and you got the lights, motors, action, extreme stunt show. And I vividly remember like promo material for this because they were making it a huge deal. I thought it was a big womp womp. I was going to say, I never sat through it. So your family did sit through it? I think I saw it twice and I didn't I didn't leave feeling anything great. I know some people are very nostalgic and enjoyed it quite a bit, but I, I'm not a car person, so maybe that's part of it. But I thought it was kind of a big waste of space. It was hot as Hades out there. Well, and yes, that's probably a big reason that we would have skipped it because I don't need explosives in central Florida. If I remember correctly, it was on metal bleachers. Now I do think you were in the shade, but you know, if you went early in the morning or late in the afternoon when the sun is not, you know, being covered, you're just getting beaten down by the sun. And I, I am almost positive they were metal bleachers. I mean, that would make sense. I'm sure they weren't going for comfort. And it's not like they planned on it lasting forever. I mean, because it obviously is no longer there. It didn't last forever. So, want to know a fun fact? I do. You can see parts of Catastrophe Canyon repurposed. So, if you go to Disney's Wilderness Lodge and you go to the Boulder Ridge Cove Pool, which is a mouthful, you can see some of the old mining equipment, which is pretty cool. It is cool. I do like Boulder Ridge. Like, I just yeah. like that Disney repurposes everything. They always find a spot for everything. Almost Except everything. Except for the Earful Tower. Maybe John Stamos has it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's hiding it somewhere. He could be. He has to have like an airplane hanger if that's how, what he's doing with it. He could. So that kind of wraps up everything about Backlot Tour. And here's my question for you. Do you feel better or worse about it now learning more about its history? I think it has a more interesting history than just a backlot tour. I mean, I think, I don't know if I like the history with Michael Eisner. It's funny to look at the similarities between Disney and Universal because I feel like you mentioned, you know, there's always like the tick for tack, but at the same time, they almost pride themselves on being so different and, you know, each one thinks they're better than the other. But when you look at both of these parks, they were intended to be the same. So I just think the history behind the park is maybe a little different than I knew previously. I just, yeah, I don't know. It, it, not that it discredits it because I think now 
MGM slash Hollywood Studios in its 32 years has now gone a completely different direction than Universal Studios Florida. I mean, and even Universal Studios has completely changed their direction. They're no, they don't have a Nickelodeon stage anymore. They don't have the Blue Man Group. They are transitioning more to just be a traditional theme park. But it is, I don't know. It's just something weird about this. Like you hear so much about old school MGM, and I remember it to a certain extent. But hearing this about how it was almost a complete ripoff was, it's a little unnerving. Well, and you think about, you know, they were both so confident in this idea that they both did it. They both put the money into making these new parks. And then in both scenarios, it was kind of a fail. And I feel like Hollywood Studios is so different now because they completely had to pivot. You know, we don't see that original idea of like you are experiencing how these movies are being produced, whereas now you are being put into the movies. And that's why you have these larger than life things like Galaxy's Edge and Toy Story Land, because they want you to feel like you are living it. You know, even the same way they got rid of the great movie ride. And now we have Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway because you are experiencing what it's like to be in a cartoon. How did they have the audacity to open this park with only two rides? Now that I will never understand. I mean, I don't know, unless you're just a huge Disney fan, or I don't know what it cost at the time, but how would you have convinced people to buy tickets? I mean, we've talked before about DCA and how that was kind of an epic fail on the West Coast. I mean, this sounds not great. I mean, I think the addition of Sunset Boulevard means way more to this park than we ever could have realized. I don't know if they ever would have turned it around if they didn't get something like Tower of Terror and Rock and Roller Coaster. Because, look, I like Backlot Tour. I like Great Movie Ride. I appreciate what they did. But they that doesn't sell tickets as much as Tower of Terror does, I don't think. I also wonder if there were any behind-the-scenes meetings with Michael Eisner. Like, okay, what were you thinking? Like, you promised us all these things, or not promised maybe, but you presented all these great things. Now what? You know, he must have had to kind of eat his words too. He never did. Well, I'm sure he never did, but you never know what happened behind closed doors. Well, it's interesting, and... um you know, one of those videos and the research that we did after we did our online and, and literature research, he said, you know, Michael Eisner is almost credited for saving the company and almost ruining the company at the exact same time. It's just a fascinating time period, kind of bef- right before the internet boom takes place, of how they were able to get away with a lot of these things. Because really the only media coverage that they were getting was newspaper. And mm-hmm. a little bit of TV, but it was, it's hilarious to even see there were comparisons between the newspapers and how they were covering Universal Studios Florida and how they were covering MGM Studios. And a lot of times the newspapers even got them mixed up in 
their coverage because they were so similar. Which is mind-blowing to even imagine that they could get confused. So we hope this episode was worthwhile as a storytelling episode to have a deeper understanding and appreciation for where this park comes from. I think this is probably the hardest park to really wrap your mind around on what does it stand for? What is it trying to do? And I think that story is still being told today. I bet when we look back 30 years from now on its 62nd anniversary, we are going to have a completely different idea as to what MGM slash Hollywood Studios is, what it offers, what it stands for, what its goals are, and we'll probably continue to laugh about some of these early missteps of what it took. And I do think next time we go to Hollywood Studios, I'm going to have a good time walking around and trying to picture what some of these places originally were. Even though a lot of it has been torn down and it's hard to see, it is fun to kind of think about the footprint of the studio's tour and how big it was and how small everything else was. I think you're just in the full day of just sitting in Backlot Express and you can get a lot of the same feelings that you would get from Backlot Tour. Maybe so. And eat a Wookiee cookie. A Wookiee cookie, Indiana Jones, but even um, like the Muppets, the Muppets store has some props in there that might give you some, some good nostalgia. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you can join us on Thursday for another episode of Detour to Neverland. We will be, if you're listening on release day, we'll be riding Velocicoaster today. So stay tuned on social media as we try to express in words, I guess, what it's like to ride on Velocicoaster. Not just screams or tears of joy. So hope you can join us for that. Thank you so much for listening. Hope your week is off to a great start. We will chat with you on Thursday. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.